Welcome back. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. And we have a very special guest joining us on the factory floor today. Critic and author of a new book called Talk 90s to Me, 23 Unpredictable Conversations with Stars of an Unforgettable Decade. Matt Pace is here. Matt, welcome to the show. Hi, Aaron and Carly. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we're delighted to have you. Uh, And we have a very special movie planned for this episode, which uh, our scrupulous listeners who have read the title before they clicked play will probably be able to find out and deduce before we say it. Uh, But before we get to that conversation, I do want to talk a little bit about this book. Uh, Talk 90s to me. 23 Unpredictable Conversations with Stars of an Unforgettable Decade. It's a very descript title. I appreciate it. It lets me know exactly what's (laughs) going to be in it. Um, But I'm curious, Matt, what led you to these conversations? What led you to approach the 1990s and uh and what about the decade inspired you to seek out these interviews sure yeah thank you for asking so when i think about the 90s what jumps out at me first is that that was the time when i first became excited about pop culture the movies and the music and the tv shows and just learning that all of this stuff was out there and really engaging with it in a way that felt intellectually stimulating and recognizing that there was a a community uh, and that things could be entertaining uh, and just all any any types of adjectives that we could throw out there is when it hit me in the 90s Um, and I was lucky enough to spend 11 years as the movie critic for the Chicago Tribune's Red Eye and I reviewed over 2,000 movies there and interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people Uh, And the interviews over time definitely became uh, my favorite part of that role. Uh, Loved the reviewing side too, but um, the interviews definitely became my favorite because of the ability to really do uh, a ton of research and wanting to take conversations to a place that they hadn't gone before. There's no point in having that type of access and just asking the same old questions. So... um, after I left uh, that full-time role into something not based in entertainment, I've really had a great time utilizing a lot of that experience and those skills in a new way. So I, a few years back, I did a statistical analysis of Saved by the Bell, counting the number of times that Zach Morris lied, uh, because that was the oh show my that... God. <laughs> because I knew that show really well, uh, but thought it would be pretty awesome to put some numbers to his behavior, uh, which was super fun. Um, And then I attached 22 cast interviews to that book uh, as well. Uh, So then to finally answer your question, I thought it would be really fun to do a book of only interviews uh, of movies and shows from the 90s, broaden it beyond Say by the Bell, and just look at a number of properties and performances and stars that were still worth uh, exploring and really bring something new to the nostalgia that we feel there. Uh, I, I am curious, Matt, were there any sort of prevailing narratives or themes that came out? of the interviews that you conducted. I, I know in some of the ones that I was able to read and, and they're all very fun, very insightful. You're, you're an excellent interviewer, by the way. Uh, I, I'm curious about maybe, you know, as, as you were going through this project and asking people and, and a common question that kind of comes up is, you know, what's something you're nostalgic for? What was it about the nineties that defined it or, or was kind of different about it? Was there anything that you could kind of see as an overarching answer or theme that, 
revealed itself through those conversations. Certainly. And as you said, I each each interview did start with the same two questions, asking people what they were nostalgic for from the 90s, as well as a movie or a show that they were not in that they loved then or find themselves coming back to now. So in my interviews, I should mention a few of the people I spoke with. So talking to Tom Everett Scott of That Thing You Do or Karen Parsons of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I did talk to Leanna Creel, a.k.a. Tori Scott of Say By The Bell. I could not oh my gosh. Say By The Bell in this book too. Um, <laughs> William Daniels, who was Mr. Feeney on Boy Meets World, uh, Dougie Doug from Cool Runnings, Luke Edwards from Newsies, um, and Little Big League, a, a great variety of people from the 90s. And there were definitely several of those people um, who affirmed something that I think we all feel a lot of the time, which is that just technology was not oppressive back then. Um, you weren't connected to your phone. You weren't reachable at every second. You didn't feel this constant accessibility and involvement in everything constantly. Um, and as a result, the kind of the investment that you had in different things changed. Um, so interactions with people were different. I mean, I, I, I have on the back cover of the book that the, the, the conversations are either supposed to feel like uh, getting a drink with these people or having like a long phone call with people, like which was common in the 90s, believe it or not. <laughs> it was a long time ago now, but I don't know how often people sit on the phone for an hour, hour and a half, because that's how long these conversations were for this book, about uh, 60, 75 minutes or so, which allowed us to go to some really new um, and thought-provoking, but always accessible and entertaining places. But uh, I mean, it was great to hear from people just being honest, not as actors, but just as people about how they remembered, um, like dial up internet or, or standing in tower records and considering what, what album to buy. I mean, the things that are formative when, when you're a kid and, and being exposed to pop culture or technology and, and things have obviously changed so much since then that, um, we could have a whole side conversation about like what our children will will or won't be consuming now and how they consume it. I love that you're bringing up the concept of technology in the 90s, you know, being distinctly different from technology today and that it had implications on our lived experience, not just, you know, sort of moving through the world, but also as you so astutely mentioned, um, it had implications on our interactions with other people. Um, and, and I think too, you can also see in the nineties, there's an inflection point of understanding the technology and sort of the connectedness of things via the internet and um, a lot of other areas in tech that were starting to pop up that were, you know, affirming for us, like our excellence as Americans, sort of this new frontier at that same time, there was some paranoia around that inflection point. Like there are movies I'm thinking specifically like about the net um, and enemy of the state that are all about that kind of technology being used nefariously. And it's, it's very real drawbacks and, and risks. 
Um, and then, of course, we get into the very material oppressiveness of technology, not just on its implications for class and how that shows up across um, the different spectrums of our society, but also in production, um, specifically in media production. Technology being this thing that has, as it has marched forward, has narrowed the scope of what is being produced um, and really sort of smoothed a lot of the rough edges down um, that I think were still there in the 90s, even though CGI was being used and, um, and there were a lot of you know, digital effects that were just starting to bloom. Those are great points, Carly. I'm so glad you uh, mentioned all of that. And I'll, I'll just add on that you reminded me of a, a few more of the interviews in the book that really got into things like that um, in a lot of really different ways. I mean, that ranges from talking to Dave Holmes, who, of course, um, became well-known by almost winning MTV's Wanna Be a VJ, and then yeah. since has, has, <laughs> has had a really great career as a, a pop culture expert. Um, but talking to him about exactly what you said, that um, the notion of just banter and the sort of seeming um, innocence of people talking to each other versus testing out your own cleverness on Twitter or something, which is not a new right. new point by any means, but is sort of perpetually relevant as, as that is a place that people um, go to to see if, uh, you know, what they're saying is, is trenchant for others. Um, talking to Ariana Richards uh, from Jurassic Park about if people can even have their minds blown anymore, um, you know, thinking mm, yes. of, thinking about the ways that seeing Jurassic Park in the theater, uh, being a little scared the first time, but then going a second time and a third time and just thinking it was the coolest thing ever and, and wondering uh, if a 10, 12-year-old can still goes to the movies and sees a Marvel uh, sequel and still thinks that's like, it changes their perception of what a movie can be. I mean, I don't know. Um, and the last one is talking to Aaron Schwartz of Heavyweights uh, and the Mighty Ducks about... He was saying that he just remembers, and maybe this is the difference between being a kid and an adult, but I also think it was really different in the 90s that things just felt so new and had such a big impact on like being really excited about a new discovery. Um, and that could apply to a lot of different things then. And he was saying that he just he just doesn't feel like he has that same sense of excitement and discovery anymore. And again, of course, that's going to change um, as you get older, but but it's not hard to see why a kid in the nineties would feel that way about certain things. And that maybe there would be less of that going on now. Humans have an innate sense of curiosity and wonder no matter how old they are. Um, like I think all of us know that to be true, but uh, you know, the free market and <laughs> capitalism really beats that out of us. Um, <laughs> and we don't really have a chance to, to experience those things that often, but you know, it's still there because then when you do have that feeling like watching a movie that like, you know, you just like are totally blown away by, I watched Kronos, Guillermo del Toro's um, vampire movie for the first time um, in the last year. It's been around since 93. So about, 93. about 30 years now, almost 30 years. Um, and I was blown away by it. I was just like, totally enwrapped and like fell in love with everything I was watching and really, really moved by it. And then talking about it, I was like 
re-experiencing all of those feelings. So like we know that as adults, those feelings are still there. Like we're still capable of having them. We have so little opportunity, not just with, you know, how little free time there is and this connectedness that you're talking about to feel those things. But it's also to your point that um, there is this cycle of newness that's too quick now for us to really um, kind of experience wonder in a way that we used to be able to. So I just recently acquired a vehicle, Matt, uh, and it is a, a vehicle from 2006. And uh, for the first time in a long time, I only have access to a tape deck and a CD player. There's a point to this conversation, I promise, as it pertains to, to uh, your, your book, which is that I have uh, begun reinvesting in obsolete physical media. I've purchased CDs from like discount bins and, and you know, Barnes and Noble and things like that for the first time in like uh, almost 20 years. Uh, and I'm realizing that I actually have more time to focus in on a single entity a single kind of like artifact and creation on like one cd when i have to change between them then when i have this whole array of things available to me and at my disposal at my fingertip uh virtually and i think one of the things that made the 90s so interesting to me is that we were right as you kind of mentioned at that precipice of technology being freeing and not yet prohibitive to like the act of making a definitive choice. Uh, there was a more kind of like deliberate act about what we chose to engage with and what was available to us. You know, we talk about the nineties being, you know, a, a hit factory as our show implies, but I think it was also because there was this very intentional way that movies were made that uh, were less about kind of the fastest return on investment and more about some level of craftsmanship and knowing that the quality and structure of a thing would yield the money that you were looking for. Uh, that's a long-winded way of, of me just kind of asking the question, did you get into that with any of these interviews overall? Did anyone have any thoughts about the shift in the media landscape and how technology has given us more choice but less interesting choice? A bit. I, I didn't want to focus too much on the way that things change because I think it's the sort of thing that's easy to talk about, but also sort of always evident, I think, for people who are paying attention. Um, mm -hmm. But I mean, in the Tom Everett Scott interview, we talked about, I had asked him, I think the question was, where have you seen more change, the difference in the music industry between the 60s and the 90s versus the movie industry between the 90s and mm. now? Um, so we got into that a bit. And and certainly in, in those uh, initial questions, acknowledging the, the way that people got excited to go to Blockbuster or, um, I mean, the fact that, and, and I very much was, I, I love that the conversations felt so i think starting them off that way um with that nostalgia really got them off on the right foot um of of the subject being able to be honest me being able to be honest and say like as silly as it sounds i can absolutely remember specific cds like holding them in my hand at best buy and saying should i buy this or not which might sound ridiculous to, to people now but i think people who grew up at that time could probably relate to that um 
but then using that kind of common ground um, as a, a way to start things off. Uh, I, I'm so happy that I made that decision to, to start from that place of nostalgia because there are um, some of these interviews had to go to some places with some challenging questions, but um, through my experience and, and just kind of setting the right um, feel to, to the interactions that happened organically. Um, and I was so happy with the way that that was able to go, whether it was when you talk to Jason James Richter from Free Willy and knowing that you do need to mention Michael Jackson at some point in that conversation because Michael Jackson was so linked with um, Free Willy and the uh, astonishing success of that um, franchise. Um, Or even just uh, talking with Shannon Elizabeth about American Pie, um, one of the few uh, properties covered in the book that really is seen a lot differently now um, than it was when it came out. Um, there are plenty of things in the book that are very similar, not necessarily the same, but but have aged pretty well and, and don't necessarily need to be um, seen with uh, adult eyes in the same way. But American Pie would have been irresponsible to talk about that now without acknowledging the way that things have changed for the better um, from then till now, which doesn't mean I didn't laugh hysterically in 1999 when I saw that in the theater. I absolutely did. But we can also be honest and say I, I have some other feelings about it now, too. I think that when you're so when you're describing that moment of being in Tower Records and holding a CD in your hand and making the decision to buy it or not, um, like I would actually argue that we had more choice then in the sense that we had more agency in our decisions. Um, I wouldn't define choice as like quantity of options. Yeah. I have, I've come to understand that choice is like my, my agency, my, my participation in the choosing um, and we absolutely had more of that in the 90s because things were less algorithmically designed for us. So, you know, all of this is a roundabout way of saying, like, we're not just talking about, you know, a, a myriad of options or sort of like a diversity of options um, that I think the 90s had uh, over now. It's also this uh, this concept of, like, being the one to actually make the decision and have there be a thought process behind it. Like, you know, looking at like two different notorious BIG CDs and deciding which was the one I was going to buy. Cause I could only afford to buy one of them. Like I had to do a lot of like mental gymnastics. Like yeah. what are the songs like? And how do I feel about the album art? And now I can just skip through anything I don't like whenever it comes on. One question I wanted to throw your way Matt is, you know, on our show, as Carly's mentioned, as I think I've kind of alluded to as well, we talk a lot about nostalgia, uh, but often kind of challenge it in a lot of ways. We, we are often considering sort of the ways our own nostalgia plays a factor in how we approach films, how we regard artifacts and, and cultural objects from, you know, the decade that we cover. And I'm just, I'm curious if any of that came up in your experiences with these people, maybe maybe their own sort of experiences with nostalgia that you're asking about and, and you know, are, are being inquisitive about, but also with you and and where you fell at the end of some of these conversations. Did you have any of your own 
recollections and your own kind of warm, fuzzy, uh, like rosy colored, nostalgic feelings challenged while having conversations for the book? Oh, that's a good question, Aaron. Um, I think, and people sometimes just receive material. They read a book, they watch a movie, whatever it may be, and they sort of equate the way it makes them feel with the objective quality of the thing and don't necessarily look at the subjectivity of why this plotline, this theme, just anything about the movie might be hitting them in particular uh, a certain way. And over the years, I always, I mean, I, I still post a top 10 every year, um, but I, I don't call it the best movies anymore. I just call it my top 10 favorites. And I, I try to look at everyone's top 10 as a way of just saying, okay, these were the 10 that worked best for you for a particular reason. I, I think within the discussion of objectivity versus subjectivity, there are sort of points at the very end that are less debatable. <laughs> if, if you can make arguments for the worst things, please feel free to try. Um, but, but I... I really find it interesting. I mean, I recently um, had a conversation about the movie Airborne, uh, where I, I had interviewed the star Shane McDermott for the book. And that's such a great example of a movie where it's very small. It made no money when it came out 30 years ago. And a lot of people still probably haven't even heard of it. Uh, I was, I don't think I've ever technically even been surfing in my entire life. My rollerblading experience is some as a, teenager or whatever but for whatever reason that movie really connected with me when i was a kid and i still feel fondly about it and i but i know why i because that is a an underrated example of a movie that finds calm in a chaotic time and i think a lot of teen movies struggle to create that vibe um and some people might like that movie some might not but i think it's really unique in the way it's able to create uh the storm of adolescence and then put a character in the center of that that has found a perspective to be able to just be cool with things um and when you're 12 or 17 or however many years later to to revisit it that's that's kind of a a nice thing for a movie to be able to achieve even in a an 86 minute um goofy comedy that still um it has is now a little closer to 30% on Rotten Tomatoes, but still not exactly beloved <laughs> critically. And now to transition to the conversation about today's film. Uh, We are talking about the 1995 comedy, Heavyweights. Matt Pace is still in the studio with us. Carly's back as well. Um, I've got to ask you, Matt, because this is one that came uh, as a suggestion from from your short list. What is it about Heavyweights that you love? When did you first come to the movie? Uh, why, Why this film? So of all the movies and shows uh, explored in the book, this was not one that was one of my favorites as a kid by any means. In fact, I remember strongly disliking it at first. <laughs> huh, okay. I don't, I don't remember why. I, if I had to 
guess, and this is completely a guess, I suspect it was because of how ridiculously over the top Ben Stiller's character is. Um, the Tony Perkins stuff is just a lot. Um, <laughs> and I wouldn't be surprised if, if I took issue with that, but, but maybe that wasn't why I didn't like it uh, as a kid. I, I, was happy that so by by interviewing Aaron Schwartz, I was able to touch on heavyweights and the Mighty Ducks, um, two very enduring properties um, from that time. Um, both written by Steve Brill, who directed Heavyweights, also um, and co-wrote Heavyweights with Judd Apatow. Um, but it's a movie that I definitely feel more fondly about now than I used to, which isn't saying much because I started off from hating it. <laughs> but but I appreciate more what it does well while also having some um new perspective on things that i wish they would have approached maybe a little bit differently what about you guys i'm so glad that you hated this movie because <laughs> i was worried we were we, all three of us were gonna come on and be like oh my god fucking love this movie watched it a thousand times it was also on disney channel um, so I'm, I really appreciate that you are not coming from that perspective because I think that's important um, and a good reminder for me to know that those people exist. Um, I had the exact opposite experience with you. I was a child uh, when this movie came out and I was watching Disney Channel every day of my life. Um, and some of my fondest memories as a kid are sitting in our television room with my sister with TV trays in front of us eating snacks or whatever, watching this movie for like the 90th time and just like howling at some of these lines, like the stuff that I thought like wouldn't make me laugh as an adult still, still makes me laugh. I think the character of Lars is a really interesting and important one. And I actually loved this movie because of Tony Perkis. Like everything he did was hilarious to me. I thought he was insane and evil and watching him was just like, one of the most fun things for me to do. Um, but I also feel like this movie is architected really well to, to do well um, for a certain, in a certain like, you know, quadrant of, of families and, and kids in America at the time, because it has so many familiar faces in it and already loving, you know, the mighty ducks and, and seeing so many people in that, uh, in that film, in this film, and the film itself also just constantly being on the Disney Channel, which is one of their best, you know, sort of marketing avenues. Like, it put me in this posture to, I think, accept and not just accept, but adore so many of these movies wholesale um, because of. Uh, because of just my familiarity with them and the the people involved. Um, the last thing I'll add, though, is like, I still think as a child, you understand the things that you're drawn to and not drawn to. There's a movie that was on the Disney Channel all the time, also like a sports film um, called Brink. And like, I hated that movie, I think, because <laughs> I hated the lead, Eric. Uh, Eric Von Detten. Eric Von Detten. Yeah. Um, As I loved Brink, actually. That was so one many that people I... do. Um, Is that the other had... rollerblade one? Yes. Yeah, it's okay. another... I've never with... seen it, but I'm aware of that being the other rollerblade movie. That it's the there. other rollerblade. Yeah, movie. with with uh, Team X Blades as the villains. Team X Blades, yes. Um, like same as you. Like I watched it, and I was just like, I don't like this guy. He's too much. Like this isn't for me. 
Um, all of this to say, like, I appreciate that we can assert that there were these sort of like universal experiences as children of the nineties, but there clearly were not. Right. And I think, you know, it's even more important to acknowledge that like being from the background of like a middle-class white family meant like I had certain things available to me and like watched certain things and did certain things and had more leisure time than other people um, who, who didn't. And so that also impacts, you know, the things that I remember fondly. Yeah. I had a similar experience to Carly, uh, growing up. I, I watched this movie all the time. It was on television for me on Disney channel. Uh, and I remember really, really enjoying it. And I, I think a big draw for me was in fact, Ben Stiller. I, I don't know what it was. Maybe there's just different temperaments there, but I, I loved the cartoonishness of his character. And yeah, like Carly, I, I thought maybe coming back to this that I would be less attuned to it, which I think is actually the opposite of what happened. I think that, uh, you know, Judd Apatow's involvement in this film, and I believe it's actually like his his first screenwriting uh, credit on a feature film uh, at this point. But I, I think that kind of Apatow brand of comedy has really been mainstreamed over the last 20, 25 years uh, since this movie was released and, and you know, we got things like Freaks and Geeks and Undeclared on television in, in the early aughts and with things like Knocked Up and The 40 Year Old Virgin, like it's it's developed and it's gotten a little bit more mature and adult. But I think a lot of those same kind of rhythms are there. And uh, for better or worse, uh, you know, we, we've become more accustomed to it over time. Certainly. Yeah, it was. It's it's fun to look back at where people started, and I'm, I'm sure that there are some people out there who don't remember that Judd Apatow had these screenplays produced. Um, this and Celtic Pride um, a year after mm-hmm. Heavyweights. Oh my god, I, I totally forgot about that film. I've not I have seen. not seen Celtic Pride since 1996. I remember hating that in the <laughs> theater when I was. 14 15 however old then and i have not chosen to give it another try um (laughs) but you guys are making me think of uh just another component of of looking back on these movies and it's the degree to which different people have different conversations about different properties um and i brought that up with karen parsons um in talking to her for the book because i i just felt aware of the fresh prince becoming such a beloved show but but recognizing that it's obvious that that some people uh depending on who you are and who your friends are or what you're aware of about the world you are going to talk about certain things about those episodes that other people maybe will miss or not realize is there to discuss um and i'd mentioned to her in that uh interview that it made me think of um on the topic of kids sports movies that um like 10 years ago or so now when I interviewed Chadwick Boseman um, about the movie 42 when he played uh, Jackie Robinson, I'd asked, I was asking him about like the kids sports movies that he loved growing up. And that was a good education for me in not just filtering things through my own experience, because I asked about the Sandlot and rookie of the year and little giants and things like that. And he was kind of like, nope not not really (laughs) like like he pointed to remember the titans and and a bunch of other things that um that was that was that was a good 
moment of learning for me to not just think that everyone has had the same experience as me or would love the same thing as me by any means. So I mentioned that because um, Heavyweights is a good example, as, as we hope any movie that makes an impact would be, where some people might watch it and just laugh and turn off and be like, cool, that was fun. But there is a conversation to be had about the material there, too. And I, I think that could really exist along a pretty wide spectrum. Far from the everyday world, there is a place, a place where big... Congratulations, Mr. Sims. You are the fattest boy in camp. ...is beautiful. And thin isn't it. This is definitely not sanitary. For Jerry and his friends, it was a dream come true. Until the new owner... Turned it into a nightmare. Lunch has been canceled today due to lack of hustle. Now, after six weeks of frustration... Then we're going to climb that 1,000-foot rock face over there. Starvation. There isn't a gummy bear left in this entire camp. And humiliation. Nice swing, you fat tubbo. Everyone having fun? Jerry's out to do something far more important than lose a few pounds. I have a plan. He's out to gain respect. What is going on? You can't kidnap the owner of a camp. Welcome to the annual Apache Relay. We're as good as anybody. And it's about time we started acting that way. Take him down, Cappy. Walt Disney Pictures presents a comedy for every kid. Tell me the artist and title, please. Uh, Cher? Da Vinci's Mona Lisa. Tired of taking it. I'm so slow. It would have been cool to go fast. And ready to dish it out. Heavyweights. So the film itself is uh, written collectively and collaboratively by Judd Apatow and the director, Stephen Brill. Uh, two gentlemen who, to my knowledge at the time uh, and, and still today, are, are not men of size. They're not particularly uh, heavy gentlemen. Uh, and I, I see in this movie so many moments uh, and, and focuses on like a, a really kind of careful and measured attempt at empathy for fat characters, which is something that I think that Hollywood struggles with even a little bit today. And it's interesting to see something like this in the 90s come out um, because I, I think that there's this kind of propensity towards looking backwards uh, for, you know, at these past decades and, and just going down sort of the moral checklist and, and what it gets right and what things it gets wrong and what's problematic. And while, yes, you know, there is uh, there are parts of this movie where, where fatness is used as a punchline, it's never punching down so to speak it's it's maintaining the dignity of these characters it clearly has a love for them it lets fat performers play themselves you know there's no like uh, prosthetics or or fat suits or things like that that have become kind of a, a complicated issue that we discuss and uh so i was really impressed with that watching it i, I had i had expected a lot of those things to you know a, a phrase that i don't like to use very often age poorly but I was actually pretty overwhelmed on this watch by how much of it hadn't aged poorly and how much of it actually had been kind of 
maybe representative of, of a pinnacle that we're still constantly striving to achieve in our portrayal of, of people of size in cinema? I think one of the things that stands out the most watching it now is that it is Camp Hope is presented as a camp for uh, heavier children, yet in the 30 plus years that it has existed, outside of Paul Feig's character, it doesn't seem to have succeeded with anyone um, <laughs> or achieved the intended outcome. And and that's really interesting because it, it really speaks to the community that is created there and the degree to which the first year, as, as was the case with Jerry, the first year it's possible that all those campers were sent against their will by their parents who wanted them to get into better shape. But year after year, they seem to have returned probably because it felt like a, a loving place where they were excited to see their friends again. Um, I think there are nuances to that, that the, I wonder if a modern version would have explored that in a more complex way. Like, um, like, oh, one of my best friends from camp lost a lot of weight and now he won't talk to me anymore. Or I'm, or, uh, I lost a lot of weight and then none of my friends would from camp would talk to me anymore. So I gained it all back because I wanted to be there. Just a lot of, um, richer explorations, I think that could have been used for this movie because in reality, these kids get to camp and they pretty much don't want to do anything. Um, and the exploration of, I mean, the movie's main point of sort of advocating for moderation, um, whether it's in what you eat or how you train, um, it's only it's only that it comes so into conflict with Tony Perkis being kind of out of his mind um, and having his own agenda Um do they take such issue with the, the healthiness of it? But it's a little bit interesting the ways in which the movie seems to suggest that some of these kids are using food for, um, you know, as a crutch in some kind of way, mm-hmm. but that even in, and I, I talked about this a little bit in my interview with Aaron Schwartz, that even in a setting where they don't have quite that same emotional cause and effect, the way that they interact with food doesn't seem to change. Does that make sense? I hope I'm articulating that well. I think so. I'm going to push back a little bit on a couple of things that you said. One is that the kids get to camp and, and don't want to do anything. The impression I get of Camp Hope and the impression I had when I was a kid is that it is a place that is more about sort of like building community and friendship and celebrating yourself and accepting yourself than it is about like losing weight. And I think like, while that might be sort of like the broader marketing umbrella they use for the camp, it's not, it's clear that that's not actually what the owners or the people that attend the camp or work at the camp actually care about. Um, and so I, I think of that less as like, oh, the kids don't want to do anything. And it's more just like the, the sort of goal of being there is, is different and they still do have a lot of things that allow them to bond and, um, and build community together. We talk so much now, particularly online about fat acceptance and never in a piece of media have I seen it manifested so directly and uncomplicatedly as I have in this film, which came out, you know, 
almost 30 years ago and we didn't even have the language of like the pop cultural language of fat acceptance at the time but all of the kids love who they are <laughs> like jerry doesn't think he has a problem nor does he like feel like you know um he needs to change he's maybe positioned as a little bit of an outcast in the beginning but he's not sitting around saying like god i wish i was 50 pounds thinner the only time that conversation comes up is when Pat, the adult character who is heavy, is saying to Jerry, I've never scored a point in my life. I wish I wish I was those guys. I wish, you know, I I wasn't always the fattest guy in the room. And immediately Jerry, the child, is the one to say, Pat, you're cool. Like, we all love you here. You know how to do this, this and this. You're great with this. And it becomes about his assets. And then they both end the conversation, you know, really realizing the things that they love about one another. And it's a movie, so it doesn't always happen that way in life. But I appreciated that there wasn't all of this, like, hand-wringing around, like, how to get these people to love themselves. Like, all of the kids love themselves. It's it's actually kind of the adults both the ones who are overweight and the ones that are not who hate themselves. Tony Perkis is a great example. Um, he loathes himself uh, along with everyone else. And it's really the kids who are accepting of other people and of who they are um, without a lot of prodding from the adults. You're absolutely right, Carly. And I, I want to make sure I don't forget to clarify that when I, when I said the kids get to camp and don't want to do anything, um, what I, meant by that was simply that they none of them arrive with any um intention of losing weight which right, right. i i so agree that i love the way that the movie doesn't equate a certain we've seen a lot of more modern um movies and shows start from a place that assumes that this is um kind of an other and that they should they should just inherently be wanting to work to look a certain way or something and i'm so glad that heavyweights doesn't do that um i think and it, it reminds me of how uh say by the bell and so many shows um and and movies of this era were really obsessed with status and there was like the core group and everyone outside of that yes. was like someone else who like would get looked at for a second but unless you look a certain way or behave a certain way you are like not considered within the confines of like the way it's okay to be um and it's wonderful that heavyweights um is the exact opposite of that it also makes me think about well two two quick moments from the movie and then kind of the the thematic examination is that you know there's that great moment early when they're watching the video and jerry says to his dad played by jeffrey tambor he's like you're fatter than i am why don't you go to the camp yes <laughs> which is so great um and then the the dance sequence which feels so warm a nice a nice preview of the freaks and geeks pilot right um yep. mm -hmm. which has the great moment at the dance um which I felt like made me cry watching the commercial for that back in yes. the day, much less the actual episode. But 100%. the dance in heavyweights is so great because what a I'm always I'm on board for any time a movie can convincingly show kids that if you can just get out of your head and just be confident and have fun, good things will happen. And I that sequence um, plays out so movingly. Um, 
I think the the kind of other part of all of this is separating out health versus vanity. Um, right. But those those moments and the way that they celebrate these characters without thinking that something needs to change about them are, are beautiful. When we do get to the health point at the at the end of the film, right? When Pat sort of says like we really do have to do something here. We, we all have to be committed to being a little bit better, but we can do it our way. We don't, we don't have to, you know, go down this road of like, of like brutalism that, that Perkis is offering us. And in that montage of, you know, them speed walking together and cooking pasta primavera and correctly identifying that like a tomato is a fruit, not a vegetable (laughs) that like, there is there is a, a middle ground that they all acknowledge they need to find. And I think the scene that really demonstrates that this movie does care about that middle ground is the completely like bacchanal um, sequence of them just like losing their fucking minds, covering themselves. I mean, it's primal right. yeah. um, in <laughs> chocolate syrup and peanut butter and like, you know, <laughs> ostensibly like having a bender um, uh, of food. And like, we're meant to see that and like, yes, think that it's funny, but also be like, okay, yeah, this is what excess looks like. Um, and they wake up in the morning literally hungover and they're like, okay, we need to change something. Mm-hmm. And I think this, Matt, is like where we get into that conversation that you were having about uh, sort of the... Wh- you know, when you said they're not doing anything, I think this is kind of what the point is and what the crux of of what your statement may have meant is, which is when they first come to camp, they are complacent. They are people who don't have the intention, as you said, of losing any weight. Uh, and they may, you know, not hate themselves, which is always a good place to start as children, but they also don't necessarily love themselves. I think they still see themselves as social outcasts and they acknowledge the solidarity that they found at camp, but outside of camp, there's still this, I mean, there's even the the camp just across the lake, right? That terrorizes them with with the more athletic young boys. And, and you know that once they leave this place, like the world outside of it is much less accepting of them. And by the end of the film, after this hedonistic display of, sugars and syrups and you know sodas and uh, twinkies on your pizza and all that kind of stuff there is the understanding that there has to be a self-love and and a, a, a something that we focus on principally to try to better ourselves in some way right we can we can be accepting of ourselves and love ourselves but we also have to have the confidence to understand and acknowledge that once we step outside of this space that we've cultivated for ourselves that we can still accept ourselves that we can still love ourselves I think this is one of the points, Matt, that you were bringing up about if this movie was made today, there would be a little bit more texture and a little bit more depth in the examination of these kids and and Pat and and you know some of the other people, their relationship with food and what it's used as, and and not just you know this idea that it's like uh, sort of a de facto part of of being heavy of, of, of fatness that like, Oh, we have an unhealthy relationship with food. I think it would have explored what those causes were because it's different for different people and uh, people of all different sizes have different relationships and different kind of expressions of the way they eat or the way they don't eat. There's even a 
bulimia kind of crack when they're at that dance, you know, between the girls when they're fighting. She says something about, uh, you know, maybe you can teach them to to throw up after you eat like like you do. Uh, and, and I just think that there would have been in in a more modern telling of this story, a more thorough examination, like you said, Matt, of, of that kind of relationship with why they're eating and, and what that it, sort of Bacchanalian expression of sugars and, and junk food means to all of those kids. Yeah, because even as the movie is so warm towards its main characters, it still defines them in a lot of ways by their size. It would be nice if not and, and maybe there's an exception to this that I'm forgetting in the movie, but with the moments when they all break out the hidden stash or, or refer to all the things that they wish they could eat and that sort of thing, it's a bit of a broad stroke that is sort of suggested that because everyone looks like this and is at this camp, then every single person is like, give me all the stuff. I, I want to eat a burger in a bathroom stall and I want to hide candy in the woods and all this sort of thing. It would be nice if, there were some kids there who were just like, I'm here because I'm larger, but it's not because I'm eating constantly. It's just, it's just that texture that winds up sort of defining people by how they look and not really looking at anything else more deeply. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I also think a facet that is left out of not only this film, I wouldn't expect it to be in this film for the record, but it's also left out of today's current conversations around uh, fat acceptance is the role that capitalism plays um, mm-hmm. in what Americans eat and why we are the most obese country in the world. Um, this this film takes a, a, a very small, quick glance at uh, capitalism's role in these children being overweight Um, at a very early moment in the film and it is when they're all in the bus on their way to Camp Hope and there's one shot of the bus careening down a highway and on the side of the highway is at minimum 15 different fast food chain signs not put there as props they I'm sure they existed in real life Taco Bell McDonald's Burger King you name it and that was one thing where I was like oh like I see what they're doing there and they never come back to it. But I think this film, um, I think this film would be better uh, if we are having the conversation today, especially with more people in the mainstream, having a little bit more language to talk about um, the, the material implications of our economic organization as a society. I think this film would be better having explored that like why are there 15 fast food chains on the side of the highway um as these kids drive off to fat camp and why is there an entire market that has sprung up both in the form of camp hopes and the like and also tony perkis and the things that he's selling there are markets that have sprung up in response to this uh this uh you know epidemic of of overweightness like that's that's coming from somewhere um, and it's capitalism. And I wish that I wish that this film would have explored not just sort of like the personal and emotional relationships um, with food, but also the material relationships with food. I don't expect it to because it's a kid's movie and it's like 85 minutes long. But if we're talking about what this movie, you know, might get wrong or, or what it could improve upon if it were made today, that's definitely one thing. 
and that's a great level to be willing to think about it on, even if we don't expect it to explore that, because it's it makes me think of that Richie Rich has all the money in the world and puts a McDonald's in his house. Yes. Right? Oh my and God. As a, and as a kid, you take for granted that that's what you would do with that opportunity. And then years go by and you're just like, wait a minute, that shouldn't be the case for so many reasons. For so yeah. many reasons. <laughs> I also wanted to talk briefly about, uh, we'll talk about Tony Perkis, but I want to talk briefly about the character of Lars. Yep. Played by Tom Hodges in the movie. He's so good. He's very good. He's so, so good. Every every line out of his mouth, I was just cracking up. Um, but I, I was like, I looked at Aaron at one point and I was like, I don't want to be grotesque, but like Lars is a coded Nazi. I mean, like, yeah, I, I don't even think that it's like subtle, like it, it because of like the bunking situation and like sort of the despotic quality of Lars in that space, like it evokes very strong references to like prison camp, like hundred percent. He, he seems, gives them uniforms. Yeah. He's like, uh, you know, they ask him several times where he from where he's from. And he says, very far away. Um and and the fact that he sort of marches around like you know uh, nearly goose stepping all over the camp i think is just like something i never thought about it as a kid but clearly is there i that's that's interesting i hadn't made that connection um but now i want to watch heavyweights again and think about <laughs> lars exclusively that way i was i was mostly trying to place his accent because i was also thinking about um uh, Team Iceland being the enemy in Mighty Ducks yeah. 2, which yes. Stephen Brill also wrote, and just the use of, I mean, of course, in, in many like 80s and 90s movies, of course, the, the location of the enemy um, moved around a little bit, um, mm -hmm. but just that sort of uh, non-American other being the enemy, um, or placing someone um, with some kind of accent in place for, for an action movie or a kids movie, and then that equating like being a villain um so yeah. i think i was spent way too much time just trying to place lars's accent but he's he's very funny including when he screams at <laughs> being attacked by a, a deer's the most mild licks that you could have from a deer although i oh my I don't god know why i'm establishing a spectrum for that there's this is not a <laughs> situation strike that there's, completely there's definitely a spectrum we can acknowledge absolutely that. it's not bears right there's no bears in the woods we know that about it uh but no tom hodges is hilarious like i i when i think back to you know the quotability of this movie I would say it's like maybe 50 50 or even 60 40 distributed in favor of Hodges and like yes. his lines in the film. The, the conversation he has about his deviated septum. And he's like, I make a very alarming noise when I sleep. Don't be, don't be alarmed. I'm fine. <laughs> I am fine. Uh, that, and just like his like little one off things that he says, you know, like his like cry out of, I'm feeling skinny, Tony, when they're like working out and. Uh, when he's about to sledgehammer the ice block off of Tony's abs on the bed of nails and just absurdity, cartoonish absurdity, like you said, Matt, it's uh, it's so over the top. Uh, but uh, again, you know, he is he's the the companion to Tony Perkis and Ben Stiller, who is just absolutely uh, bonkers in this movie. He 
embodies this character so perfectly. Uh, we were talking about this. It's a character so nice that he almost did it twice, right? He kind of plays a variation on this same theme uh, as White White Goodman, I think is his name, in uh, in Dodgeball, like, you know, some 20 years later or so. Hello! I am your new friend and counselor. Please enjoy your new Perkis system uniforms. Your families will be built automatically. Now, let's play the fun game that helps us learn each other's names. We already know each other's names. Silence! <laughs> you, please announce everyone's name. Okay. That's Roy, that's Josh. Sam, that's Cody, that's Nicholas, that's Michael, that's Phil. And I am Lars. <laughs> Lars? What kind of name is that? Where are you from? Far away. <laughs> now, I must inform you, I have a severely deviated septum. When I sleep at night, I make a very disturbing sound. Don't be alarmed. I am fine. Now, go to sleep. Uh, I'm laughing as I look at my notes because I want to make sure we mention every worthwhile Lars line, um, which, will probably, which we'll probably still forget some, but the, the one-two punch of, you, don't pee in the water. You, don't drink the water. He peed in it. <laughs> I don't, that made me laugh this time. Hilarious. For some reason. So good. Um, and I, I actually thought you were going to say, dodgeball is a, for some, for some reason, I still haven't seen dodgeball. Um, that, that, but I thought you were going to mention it. It reminds me of um, Tony Wonder, Ben Stiller's character on Arrested Development, too. A little. Oh bit. Oh my God! Yes, I had forgotten about Tony Wonder. I f- wow! I didn't make that connection. We were we were actually getting into this conversation. I I, I made a comment uh, online before we sat down for this conversation that for whatever reason Ben Stiller has this career long fixation with this type of guy, this just like cartoonish emblem of late capitalism. Yeah, I mean, even back to like reality bites, you know, he's like kind of like yes. the suit at the entertainment complex. You know, he's he's Michael Grates, he's uh, Tony Perkis, he's uh, White Goodman, he's Tug Speedman in uh, Tropic Thunder, where he's just like you know the the star of this like ten sequel long bloated action franchise. He just loves these kinds of characters, and I will probably be very much the minority in being on board with Ben Siller, the dramatic actor more often than the way that it's played out as a star of comedies, um, which is not necessarily his fault or a judgment of him as a comedy star, but because so many of his comedic roles wound up being so broad versus movies like your friends and neighbors the Royal Tenenbaums, even yeah. Brad status from a few years ago that I don't think a lot of people saw, but that was written and directed by Mike white. Um, and, and really like those other movies I mentioned utilizes his um, dramatic abilities in ways that reminds us every few years that he, there, there are plenty of comedic actors that cannot do drama by any means and if anything he's someone who every time he does drama it's like i wish you wouldn't go back to movies that ask you to be loud yeah he i think you can see his capability in sort of like that dramatic frequency in 
a character like Tony Perkis, and just permit me here to be a little bit extra, but I, I think the range that like you have to be able to have to play a character like Tony Perkis and be as over the top, but also like be convincingly mad. And, and he is right. Like he's not just a cartoon. Like you genuinely believe that this person is disturbed. Um, the way he sort of like changes his inflection when he's like looking at the camera versus talking to himself or um, all of these details in his performances, you can see that he has the chops to, to really understand a psychology of a character, regardless of what genre he's playing in. And I think you need to be able to do that in, you know, dramatic acting. And, and he's certainly proven that he can. What I, what I think is really great about the character of Tony Perkis is he, he kind of reflects to us something that, you know, was a little bit available in popular culture, but I think has only become sort of more prevalent, which is this idea of like uh, a, a rich fail son of some sort of like corporate, uh, you know, overlord. His dad is this like lighting king who has like a franchise of, of lighting stores. Um, and he's like bought this camp and is doing all of the lighting uh, at the camp. Um, and so he's given this camp to his son as like his little project so he can sell his like weight loss infomercial and, and, you know, spend time on his, his, his passion project. And like, that's such a, that's such a like regular thing that we encounter in today's, uh, sort of like landscape of pop culture that I don't even think we identify it anymore. Like, you know, sure. We had the, the Nepo baby conversations recently, but I think it's like, not discussed enough how how uh, how problematic it is to have all of these people who are positioning themselves as captains of industry who are just children of men that run major corporations, right? Um, and often cases, these children are um, out of their minds, uh, if not at the very least, like completely incapable. Well, what's, what's kind of interesting about Tony is that he does have a driving force at the very least of, of he wants to sell his tape. He wants to be successful and, and have an impact on the kids and, and make money. And like, it's not that he's so mad, as you said, and doing all of this for no reason. He actually has a goal in mind, whereas it reminds me of Paul Rudd's character on Parks and Recreation, who is very much there just because um, he's the son of, of yes. a wealth, wealthy person yeah. and he has no goals whatsoever. He kind of wants to win the local election, you know, to impress his dad, but he also doesn't really care. And yet maybe because it's Paul Rudd, maybe because it's that character, we never really hate him aside from right. fear, fearing that someone like that would win instead of Leslie. Um, but it's just interesting that that person doesn't even want anything and yet we can like him. Whereas Tony at least is, his behavior is connected to some kind of goal that is mostly self-serving, but it it's, takes away from, there's a, another version of this character probably that is doing what he's doing for no identifiable reason whatsoever, or maybe something yeah. more, even more judgmental. Mm-hmm. And importantly with Tony, one of the driving forces for him is acceptance, love that he never received as a child, which they talk about pretty explicitly several times in the movie. Yeah. Um, 
And so there's also this sort of like personal reconciliation that he's attempting in in this venture, which is another thing that makes his character interesting. Well, and keep in mind, too, that Tony uh, tells us that when he was a boy, when he was a child, he used to be fat and he worked his way out of it. And so there is this kind of like uh, precursor to sort of like a, a hustle mindset, like a grind set sort of guy, you know, who's like super into fitness. And it's all from a, a, a self-loathing rather than a self-acceptance, right? Like we, we learn that those are the two kind of sides of the same coin. He's incredibly disciplined uh, and he, you know, has the physique. Ben Stiller is very cut in this movie, like impressively in shape in this movie for like a comic actor. Uh, but he does it, as you said, Carly, from like a void that's at the center of him. He does it to try to impress and he does it because there's something fundamentally missing that he doesn't have that acceptance and that he doesn't have any sort of like self-love or confidence in himself. He talks to little Tony, you know, aside by himself sometimes. How you doing, little Tony? Not good. <laughs> well, and I'm curious what you guys think as far as kind of the axis that the movie tilts along regarding that health versus vanity issue and if it's determination not to suggest that they're making a statement about vanity does that overshadow the health element at all i mean i'm thinking of my my conversation with aaron schwartz where when i asked him um what he thought about how involved parents should be um if their child is is really overweight and he was extremely sure about what he thought. And he said they should be really, really, really involved to him. It was the, um, it was like letting someone um, like a kid run into the street without being watched. Um, and he referenced that um, like co-stars of, from, I, I'm not sure. I don't want to misspeak. I'm not sure who he was referring to, but referring to like co-stars who have died already and died young mm -hmm. because of being so heavy. Um, but um, making sure that the involvement isn't due to um, subscribing to terrible societal standards, but also just asking, are you healthy? And if not, what can we do to make sure that you are healthy? Well, do you think the movie sacrifices a little bit in one, one side in order to make sure that they're not saying something on the other? Yeah, that's a really good question. I actually think that, I align more with the film in this regard than maybe what I what I had read in uh, your interview with Aaron Schwartz and, and the comments that he had made, which, uh, by the way, I'll, I'll note, uh, Aaron Schwartz looks a, a whole lot more like Tony Perkis these days than he does as as his his childhood version of himself. He's he's gotten very in shape. And I know that like his fitness and in, in his adulthood has been a really big part of his story in his life uh, about his kind of trajectory as a performer. Uh, but I, I think that the movie actually finds like a happy medium. And I think that it's something that is maybe safer than that health conversation, because I think even the, the you know, kind of idea of and perception of health broadly, when we talk about it in relationship to obesity and, and fatness, sometimes can veer into a, a sort of clinical conformity of sorts, right? Like some of those things can, can very easily slide into a sort of perception of a very particular type of 
fundamentally capitalist, you know, kind of conceit of beauty standards and body image and all of those things. And of course, you know, like you said, there there is a reasonable conversation about that. That is uh, the the acceptance and acknowledgement, which I think is even a stretch for some people these days, unfortunately, that there are foods that are nutritionally more substantive and better for you than others. You know, things like, uh, you know, like, like eating clean, uh, cooked meals of, of, you know, balanced sort of food groups versus eating, you know, McDonald's every day. Like you're, you will change the trajectory of your, your body and change your, your health overall. If you go down one route or the other, um, I, I wish that wasn't as contentious a statement as it was in, in some corners, but I, I, I do think that there is a very careful balance that has to be struck, right? That, that we're not talking about you aspiring to a, you know, sort of carbon copied idea of what uh, a body looks like. And that's what we consider health. It's really just about uh, a, a physical component. Yes. But also I think the, the mental component, the psychological component that this movie does favor, which is self-acceptance first, which will ultimately lead you to those driving things that will, will better you in other ways. Well, and I think the movie has a comment on vanity to a certain extent in its conversations with the other camp, um, the boys camp. They do this sort of like, what is it? Like obstacle course, like, I keep thinking of old school. What do they have to do at the end of that? Where it's like all these different weird challenges. It's, it's not unlike the Apache relay. It's it's physical uh, challenges. It's a it's a multi, uh, multiple choice like standardized knowledge test. It's a debate where right. James Carville shows up. It's like a relay race, but like they add some weird like academic stuff into it. But anyways, they have to do this Apache relay at the end of heavyweights and um and they're competing against this you know really fit. Uh, camp both camps I should say are appropriating um, clothing and and dress of of other cultures the uh, I'm blanking on the name What's I don't remember I don't remember the name, name of the other camp do you know the, the name of the other camp Matt camp MVP MVP right camp MVP camp MVP is dressed in togas and all this sort of like Greek statue uh, uh, insignia and uh Camp Hope is dressed in indigenous clothing, um, which was a big thing in the nineties. A big thing in the nineties. All the all the camps, sleepaway camps, did that. In any case, Camp Hope wins, and they get the trophy at the end. And the counselor of Camp MVP says, "You know, we're gonna lodge a formal protest that that trophy is ours." And Pat says to him, "Oh." this trophy, like, this is the thing you care about. Like, I don't care about it. It's yours. And he throws it into the lake. Um, and that to me is, is the film stance on this kind of like vanity and superficiality and materialism inherent in this sort of wrong way to be skinny, right. To be healthy. Um, and then I think where Pat and the rest of the kids come down on is like, we care about our health now yes but we're not here for those superficial um materialist reasons it's not because of vanity we don't want to win trophies this isn't because we want accolades we're doing this because we want to 
Certainly. And and it's it's so interesting to look at the way that certain um, people behind the scenes, their viewpoints on things evolved. I mean, it reminds me of how <clears throat> in Freaks and Geeks, um, one of the things that I think uh, Paul Feig wanted to do and that the characters say explicitly is that there are stereotypes that that I think heavyweights perpetuates a little bit in, in that like decathlon, which is a little bit reminiscent of Billy Madison too. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, yeah. So. Um, is the idea of like, to use crude terms, like nerd equals smart. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that competition versus camp MVP very much, those moments of like throwing in the academic side too, which has no real reason to be there, I think is just kind of believing in the cliche of like, athletic and popular equals dumb um heavier and less confident equals smart um i don't love that moment in heavyweights but um this conversation has also reminded me of um not to throw it back to say by the bell yet again but if you'll forgive me one more time always throw it back to say by the bell (laughs) it reminds me of how one of the things that stood out to me or kind of shook me the most when i rewatched the entire series for that book was that in three episodes that I had already known very well of when Zach um, dates uh, a woman who is quote unquote different than the usual character that he would normally date in that uh, Laura, who was um, uh, homeless with her dad um, in in that two part episode um, of home for Christmas, I want to say something like that. Um, uh, Melissa, who is a um, young woman who uses a wheelchair, um, and Wendy, who is uh, uh, a little bit heavier than than the girls that Zach usually goes out with. Rewatching all the episodes, I realized that those three episodes were pretty much the only times that Zach doesn't wind up kissing the one episode guest star, um, which is so obvious of why those characters are put on there um, to try to teach Zach a lesson and try to have this representation but also not actually treating that person as being on the same level as everybody else that's an interesting point you bring up matt because uh you know in this movie there are two instances i can think of where we do see uh romantic gestures and kissing from the 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 fat characters in in this movie and what i like about it is they don't necessarily wait until the end of the movie to do it when they have uh the dance with the the young ladies from the girls camp and they gets broken up just at the moment that everyone starts having a good time by Tony. Uh, there's one of the characters whose names escapes me now, but the, the one with kind of the shorter spiky hair, the kid, the salami kid with the, braces, right? The salami kid with braces who is like, uh, violently Frenching a young lady on the dance floor. Um, and I just, I love that little moment. And I love that, that, bit of the movie because she's so into it she's very into it and i i think that that's what's really kind of like cute and endearing about that moment is that it's like oh yeah like there's already these inklings of this idea in the movie uh that confidence and you know like a sort of like looseness and and assuredness of self is something that is attractive and that you know in in this case specifically is attractive to the opposite sex even if you yourself don't fit this sort of archetype of a skinny fit, like able-bodied person. Um, and then they do it again at the end, of course, with nurse Julie and with uh, Tom McGowan's character, Pat. 
and and he you know gets to plant a smooch at the end not unlike the ending of under siege with steven seagal you did mention that yeah where he just kind of shows him like i'll show you a, i'll show you a move here uh, he has an equally <laughs> funny line where he says you know crazy about my gal and and plants one on her but uh, i do appreciate in this movie that it does it does let those characters have romance and sort of like a sensuality to them in parts because i think it's really vital to giving uh heavier characters in these movies like the full treatment and scope of like what it is to be a protagonist in a movie Mm -hmm. definitely and that's something that i think movies still struggle with i no one saw this but it reminds me of a movie called cuban fury uh with nick frost and rashida jones um who could not possibly have had less chemistry in the movie. The, the movie is, is ex- extremely generic, but I'm I'm reminded of the the like final moment where you would expect them to have like a big ki- serious kiss, and it was not that, um, to put it mildly. Um, and and I don't mean to put that on the fact that um, he looks like what he looks like and she looks like what she looks like, but it's um, that, that as Aaron was talking about that willingness or unwillingness to create a certain life for someone on screen based on what they Mm -hmm. look like. Um, Because that same narrative is, is told with other people, but depending on what the character dimension is like, I mean, it also reminds me of that lousy movie. She's out of my league um, Mm. with Jay Baruchel and Alice Eve, Jay Baruchel having starred in Judd Apatow's undeclared also, of Mm, course, which that, that I like so much. Um, But she's out of my league is not dissimilar. It's someone who doesn't love themselves or see themselves as being on the same level as somebody else. But, but because he's just gawky um, Jay Baruchel uh, versus someone who, um, looks anything unlike what we define a movie star or a main character in one of these romantic comedies to look like. Um, I think the way that the filmmakers are, what they challenge themselves or allow themselves to depict about the character, unfortunately, changes so much historically. And that's, I mean, I talked about that with Megan Cavanaugh too, who most people know as Marla Hooch from A League of Their Own. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also asked her about her role in Robin Hood Men in Tights, where um, her character is treated. I mean, I, I still like that movie too, but her character, all the ways in which a league of their own kind of calls out the idiocy of the way that people comment about Marla Hooch, uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights uses her as the butt of the joke. Um, yep. So talking about that element and I mean, it's, it's now it's the nineties. It's, it's always, it's the, the unfortunate ways in which, um, pop culture sometimes separates people or creates kind of a vertical um, tier of status, which, which I think can be really dangerous for, for kids material. Yeah. And it, you know, it certainly plays into a lot of those kind of like nineties archetypes and ideas around conformity versus sort of like countercultural narratives. You know, it it is in a lot of ways, this movie uh, very much like some of the, uh, teen comedies or or even like adult indie comedies of the era that were all about this sort of uh, 90s challenge of finding a means of expression within a world that was uh, getting more and more sort of standardized and, and suited up and everyone sort of feeling the same. 
and yeah, you know, for, for better and for worse, sometimes like it, it does play into that now career long kind of exploration of the social outcast and the way that that is character building, but also very scary and challenging for young people that Apatow has been exploring throughout his entire career. Um, but I still uh, found myself very much enjoying it on this watch. And I was really, really pleased to, to be able to come back to it. So Matt, thank you so much for allowing us to do that and, and to talk a little bit about heavyweights today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's, and this is such a good example of what I love about um, working on a book like this and looking back at material like this is because I'm just constantly learning so much about it. Even I, I was about to say that I think Heavyweights makes a, a fun double feature with with Mighty Ducks. Um, mm-hmm. If you want to have a Stephen Brill party, um, because of the way that both movies are looking at sort of like val- supposed value or like masculinity through domination, all the ways in which you know Gordon um, has a failure as a kid and is told like win as much as you possibly can and winning is the only thing that matters which of course is a common kid story but but heavyweights from the same writers follows a lot of the same beats as as the mighty ducks um but in the ways in which it um is considering masculinity um and that of course is not that issue has not gone away by any means um, (laughs) since these movies have come out so to be able to look back on stuff like that and think that they raise some nice points about um connection and honesty and vulnerability and not just domination. Um, those are things that we should still introduce our kids to because they, they still hold up. Yes. hundred yep. percent on a completely topical level. Uh, they also share what three actors, Aaron Schwartz, Keenan Thompson, at least in D2, I think. Right. And, uh, uh, Sean Weiss as well as Goldberg, who is just, he steals the show. We didn't get a chance to talk about Keenan or Sean Weiss, but uh, yeah, still fantastic. Keenan, of course, still doing his thing on Saturday Night Live, like has been in comedy now for such a huge portion of his life and remains like uh, kind of like a vital part of like American comedy culture, which is really impressive. And I'll just, you know, from a personal side of things, shout out to Sean Weiss as well, who I know has gone through yes. a, a ton of hardship in his life, has faced down uh, addiction and, and all sorts of legal troubles. Uh, and I think now is like celebrating something like three years of sobriety and, and mm-hmm. is, is clean. Um, so props to, to that guy for, you know, turning his life around. I think it's really cool. It is. Our guest again has been Matt Pace. Matt's book is called Talk 90s With Me, 23 Unpredictable Conversations with Stars of an Unforgettable Decade. Matt, uh, where can people find the book? Sure. So the book is available in hardcover, paperback, and ebook uh, through Amazon, of course, as well as Barnes Noble, Target, Walmart. You can go through IndieBound to order through your independent bookstore locally, uh, pretty much anywhere you would normally get your books. Um, and I should mention that Say by the Bell book, since I didn't throw the title out there before, is Zach Morris lied 329 times, reassessing every ridiculous episode of Say by the Bell with stats. I love it. Fantastic. And Matt, where can people find you around the internet? I am just at Matt Pace, M-A-T-T-P-A-I-S. Uh, and all the places you would look. Thank you guys so much for having me, Aaron and Carly. This was awesome. 
Thanks for coming on Absolutely. and giving us such a, a rich landscape to discuss heavyweights in, but also the broader conversations about nostalgia and technology and like how our relationships with those things have evolved. It was our pleasure. Uh, come back anytime, Matt. I'll take you up on that. Thank you guys so much. This was great. Right on. From our end of things, uh, you can follow along at Hit Factory Pod. Subscribe at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod for bi-weekly bonus content. Uh, lots of special episodes and fun things going on there. I finally made the Discord. We're chatting in the Discord. Join Patreon. Join the Hit Factory Discord. <laughs> uh, I will also give a shout out to our capitalist overlords. Their names are Linda, Jesse K., Jared Murray, thank you all so much for your support. And we will catch you all the next time. See ya. Bye.